Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify Associate at Nottingham Playhouse. Joining me today is the theatre director, Kate Wasserberg. Kate is currently the artistic director of the touring company Out of Joint. Prior to that, she was the founder and artistic director of The Other Room in Cardiff, which won the Stage Awards Fringe Theatre of the Year in 2016 and the Alwyn Wymark Writers Guild of Great Britain Award for its support, working with new playwrights and several Wales Theatre Awards. The Other Room was also nominated for the 2017 Peter Brook Empty Space Award. Her recent directing work includes Rita Sue and Bob Sue for Out of Joint, The Rise and Fall of Little Voice for Theatre Cluid, Last Christmas at the Travius Theatre, German Theatre, Theatre Cluid and Edinburgh Fringe, The Barnbow Canaries at West Yorkshire Playhouse, and Sand, The Dying of Today and Blasted at the Other Room. Kate began her career as Associate Director at the Finborough Theatre, where she ran the New Writing Department and co-created the vibrant New Writing Festival. Whilst there, she premiered plays by writers including James Graham and Nick Gill. Subsequently, she became Director of New Plays and Associate Director at Theatre Cluid. I had an absolutely terrific chat with Kate, so I hope you enjoy it. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Kate Wasserberg. Hello, Kate, and thank you for joining us on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Craig. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm all right. What does social distancing look like for you? What have you been up to? Um, we have been mostly completely isolating at home. Um, my husband had symptoms of the virus and then I got poorly. So we had a few weeks where we really didn't go out at all. Uh, but we're very lucky. We've got a sunny little garden, um, two small children. So feel very fortunate, really, to be having a, a relatively good lockdown. And then lots of Zoom meetings and chats to keep the out of joint ship running through lockdown. Um, are you are you doing homeschooling as well as being an artistic director at the moment? We are. We are. Uh, we have an absolutely fabulous school that the kids are at and they've been super proactive. So we've been doing a couple of hours every day, uh, which is good. I think a bit of structure is good. Sometimes a bit challenging, uh, juggling us both working and the homeschooling but uh it, it, we're just about managing at the moment tell me a bit about out of joint um how uh yeah how is a touring theater co- a touring theater company coping at this time when there's nowhere to tour to yeah so uh, i suppose the biggest thing for us was we had a tour we the glee club was out on the road we had opened it in doncaster to fantastic reviews, brilliant audience response. We went to our first tour venue at Cluid. Word of mouth was fantastic. And uh, then we just had to stop in our tracks. And that was, of course, enormously disappointing because as a touring company, that one show represents our work for the year. That was our big outing. It was uh, going to 13 venues all over the country. It uh, was made in partnership with Cast in Doncaster and Kiln in London. Um, and so we really we really were sad about that. Uh, but our first priority was to look after our people. And so uh, once we realised that it wasn't going to be viable to continue the tour, uh, all of our focus really was about how we looked after that company. Uh, and we were able, uh, due to... Um, 
a very supportive board and um, a fantastic uh, management team, uh, our executive producer and general manager uh, doing spreadsheet uh, magic to pay everybody through to the end of the tour. Um, And that's been really important to us because as a company, our people are who we are. You know, we don't have a building. um, We're peripatetic. And so those actors, that company that were prepared to do that enormously long tour with us and for us, uh, how well we look after them and their experience of working with us, uh, lockdown or no lockdown, was the most important thing we could take away from this so that was our focus and from there we've been looking to how we as a peripatetic touring company might be one of the first to be able to have that show ready to go when the theatre community needs us because it's on ice and we feel that with a small amount of investment from the Arts Council we'd be able to get back up to speed and ready to take that and offer it to venues Uh, in a way that's affordable for them quite soon after the lockdown ends. So that's been all of our work, really. Well, that's, I mean, it's certainly an impressive feat to uh, uh, maintain your financial commitment to that company. Um, That's uh, super commendable. How long have you been running out of joint now, Kate? About four years, five years? Three, yeah, my third year, yeah. So that is currently where you've ended up, as it were. Let's go back to the the start. Where are you from, Kate? Uh, I'm from Staffordshire. So I grew up in the Moorlands, which uh, most people, the easiest way for them to understand that is it's where Alton Towers is. Uh, And as a teenager, I lived in the centre of Stoke-on-Trent. So from about 13, I I lived in Stoke. And where did your relationship with the theatre start? Are you you from an artsy family? Is there arts in your background? So um, not professionally, but my dad was an English and drama teacher. And when I was very little, um, he directed the plays for his school. He was um, uh, at Leek High. Uh, he was uh, the English and drama teacher and then another comp nearby. And um, they did Saturday rehearsals. And because my brothers did five-a-side football, um, it was a choice between going and standing and watching my brothers play football or going and watching my dad do these plays. And so I, when I was six, I sat on a crash mat in a school hall and I watched him direct, Oh, What a Lovely War. And according to my mom, I toddled in and said, that's it. That's what I want to do. And that was my only basis for knowing what theatre directing was, was watching my dad do it as a teacher. But it just captured me. And I never really wavered, despite no one knowing how you did that, where I came from. I had careers interview after careers interview where I, I was told I should be a teacher. And no one knew what the National Youth Theatre was. No one had heard of any of these things. I, I didn't find out about any of that until I was already in theatre as an adult. So I just sort of found my way through amateur dramatics. And um, my school didn't even have a theatre. It didn't do drama GCSE. So I, I just sort of found my way. Um, But I, as an adult, discovered that it was my dad's passion. It was what he'd always wanted to do. So I suppose it was there in the genes somehow. And do you you remember what it was, like, if you can cast your mind back to when six-year-old Kate wandered into your dad's uh, um, rehearsal room? What was it that captured your imagination? I remember that it was, I felt like it was the closest I'd ever got to feeling like Narnia was through the back of my wardrobe. I remember specifically having that thought that I couldn't 
bear that I couldn't bring the stories. I love books. I've always loved books. I was raised without a television. And so books were my life. Stories were my life. And uh, my sister's a novelist, I think, for the same reason. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't comprehend that I couldn't believe Narnia into being. And when I saw my dad direct, I thought, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you live inside a story. As you said, you uh, no one was quite sure of the path to take in order to uh, pursue um, theatre as a career. So what path did you furrow for yourself? What was uh, what did you carve out? How were you pursuing it? I, <laughs> I, I think I made my friends be in lots of weird made up plays that we then did in assemblies. I remember that. And. I did amateur dramatics, so I I was in the chorus line of a lot of musicals. Um, I, I'm not, I don't have really any talent as a performer, but I was an enormously enthusiastic sort of second servant from the left, um, just to be part of the whole thing. And I eventually went to Stoke on Trent's Sixth Form College because it did theatre studies A level. Um, and I I remember saying to my drama teacher where do you go if you want to do drama and he literally off the top of his head rattled off six universities and they were the ones I applied to and one of them was Exeter and I ended up there it was all when I look back it's all terrifyingly um, happenstance I had no idea for example that going to Oxford or Cambridge was a good idea if you wanted to do theatre I just thought oh well you have to do drama so I I went to Exeter and had a lovely time and and just sort of I don't know, I just sort of did it one decision at a time. I was always burningly sure that I wanted to be a theatre director. But looking back, I had absolutely no idea how to go about it. Um, I remember learning the phrase to give a note when I was 24 from a director friend I met in London when I finally got there. I really had no idea, no idea what I was doing. And so you went to Exeter and you, you had a good time uh, in Exeter. It was, it was good for you in terms of what you, what you wanted around then? I did. It was very um, devisey, which I ultimately learned wasn't me. Um, I, I think, again, because I didn't have a lot of knowledge, I, devising was the majority of the way that drama was taught on my A-level. And it took me a long time to understand that I loved plays uh, rather than making theatre in a devising way. And so I I struggled a bit with that. But I did love um, being around other people who were passionate about storytelling. And I, I loved just being able to make theatre all day. It's a very practical course and a wonderfully supportive environment. But from that through to... I ran a little theatre company after that with some friends, a sort of community theatre company together with some fellow graduates. And we made a couple of things in the community. And then I went to Central to do a master's in directing. And that, again, was very devisey. And I found that very bruising. I just couldn't. I'm not someone who can will something into being from nothing. I've never been that person. I'm someone who can draw out from writers' uh, plays and direct those plays. And it was only when I, very bruised and battered after that Masters, washed up on the shores of the Fimbra and Neil McPherson gave me plays to do that I realised, oh, hang on, this is what I am. I can do this. 
One of the questions I've been asking everyone I've spoken to on these podcasts uh, when uh, the sort of the conversation around training and formative experiences comes up is um, obviously at the moment everyone's stuck inside and perhaps early career directors or people who are considering a career in the theatre, while it's not an option to go and train at the moment, what we can do is think at, at home about what our practice might be. So I was wondering, were there any particular resources or books that were important to you in the early part of your career? Yeah, there was one book. It's um, Anyone who knows me will laugh because I give it to literally everyone. Any young director who crosses my path, I give them this book because I just think it's amazing. And it's not much read in this country. It was something that was actually on my reading list at Central. And it's called A Sense of Direction by William Ball. He's an American theatre director, uh, or was. um, And it's really old-fashioned in all sorts of ways. But... What it informed for me, why it spoke to me, is because it is the most compassionate book about directing I've ever read. It is grounded in a sense of love and respect for actors and a belief that your job is to remove fear and create a safe environment for them to be artists. And it really, really spoke to me. And it's it's really practical. It gives you a way of breaking down directing into concrete tasks for the actor. And I just can't recommend it enough um, as a sort of spiritual guide for how to lead a room of people in a way that allows actors to be their best selves. I just, I love it. And you said you uh, you washed up on the shores of the Fimbra. Uh, yeah. How did you how did you find out about the the Fimbra and uh, that that would be a place to go as a early career or um, aspiring theatre director? Again, it was terrifyingly random. I screwed up the courage to go to a Young Vic Young Directors mixer. It was the early days of the Genesis Network, and so I'd I'd signed up for that and. They held this drinks at the Young Vic and I was so nervous and shy. And I got chatting to this young guy who was producing a show at the Fimbra and they were looking for an assistant director. And he just said, do you want to, it was unpaid. And back then that was really normal. I was supporting myself by tutoring in the evenings and teaching drama at the weekends um, and temping in between. And he said, do you want to come and meet the director of the show? And so I did. I went and met him, this 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 director. And he was directing Gates of Gold by Frank McGuinness. And it turned out to be this extraordinary cast. It was John Bennett, William Gaunt, Aoife McMahon. Absolutely amazing. And um, the, the chat went well. And, and they said, yeah, you can come and assist on that show. And while I was there, I got to know Neil and he took a bit of a shine to me and I ended up assisting on a, a couple more shows and um, became a bit of a fixture. And the following year became the associate director there and me and Alex Wood ran the new writing programme there and founded the Vibrant Festival. So it all sort of snowballed once I'd found my niche. Do talk a little bit about your relationship to Neil, because he's come up in a couple of these conversations now. Uh, and he's a, he's a brilliant human being. He's sort of this, he's a sort of mad, bad, crazy man who runs a theatre above a pub and majoritively does it brilliantly and helps a load of people out. That's the way I can see it. Yeah, he's really awful. You know, he, ta- he taught me about quality. 
he was so um, unstinting in his insistence that regardless of the uh, restrictions you were facing, no matter how difficult it was, you shouldn't kid yourself that it had to be as good as theatre anywhere. And uh, that that sense of excellence, um, it, it was really... It was really the first time that I'd um, come across that. Um, it was the first time I felt that I was making theatre professionally. And he takes an intense interest in the development of young artists. And it was a really exciting time to be there. There was a really exciting stable of young writers that Neil was developing, um, amongst them James Graham, who I ended up then working with quite a lot early in his career. And he just... It was this combination of demanding the earth from you really uncompromisingly and being there for you completely. Uh, that I think is a really old fashioned man of the theatre, woman of the theatre, person of the theatre thing to be, uh, where you demand of your young people everything they have but you you are you back them 100% and I really really tried to take that into the other room when I founded my own little pub theatre Neil was very much that attitude was very much what I had in my head um I think that he knows talent I think great writing can spot it a mile off I sort of I think he's so important at the Fimbra but it hurts my heart that he never went on, has never gone on so far, we'll see, to run a bigger institution. Because I think he's got a real eye for what audiences will love that could be could be exploited more by the industry. Obviously, you, you say you say uh, you were at two years at the Fimbra. Uh, and obviously, that must have been a, a brilliant, exciting time working with James Graham, founding your own festival, getting to make shows in the way that um, you felt most appropriate to your skills and what you wanted to pursue. What happens? What happens after that when you leave sort of the the bubble of the Fimbra? Yeah, so I was actually I was there for a bit longer than that. I was I was there more like four years. So I was associate for about three years as I started to develop bits and bobs of freelancing around that, and started to do. I did a little bit of assisting, um, but I was never really anyone's idea of an assistant. So. Uh, the odd brave director took me on. Aldero Lachlan and Mark Rosenblatt were both early supporters, and and that was how I got to assist at places like uh, the um, the Young Vic and um, and the Globe. But but not very many people thought this girl from the Midlands was was their idea of an assistant. I I, I never really got very far. So I and I I, <laughs> I got down to the final two for quite a few bursaries and stuff. And I never got them. And I felt like I was treading water a bit. And I didn't really know how to move forward and make my own work. And Orla said to me, you don't need a bursary. You need a job. People like you and me, we 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 work. We need jobs. Uh, and so I thought, OK, how do I get a job? And so I just wrote this, looking back, terrifyingly honest letter um, that I sent out to various artistic directors of regional theatres that basically said that, that said, I think I'm good, I'm hungry, I really want to learn, but London is driving me mad and I need to I need to make work and I don't know what to do, can I come and talk to you? And Terry Hands responded and said, yeah, come talk to me. 
and I I got on a train and, and went and met him and he was absolutely terrifying but we really got on and uh we kept talking and I was very fortunate that he was doing a show in London at the same time as I had a show called Sons of York by James Graham on at the Fimbra and he came to a matinee and he walked out of that matinee and said come and work with me um and that was the beginning of my life changing really I packed up and I moved to North Wales and I became the new plays director initially and then the associate director of Theatre Cluid, uh, where I got to direct two shows a year. I made a wage and I had one of the greatest theatre directors of all time as my mentor. And I was there for five years and I I still to this day thank my lucky stars. I, it was it was extraordinary. I, thanks for being so honest about that, in particular because uh, often when you hear these conversations or when you see a person's CV or list of achievements, it can feel uh, very logical, like it was one thing after another and there are steps on a ladder. Uh, and I'm really keen in these conversations to for people to talk about how it didn't necessarily feel like that and how there was uh, difficulty and at times uh, there were times where you don't, you don't feel legitimate. Oh yeah, I mean, and that doesn't go away either. I, I, I mean, not feeling legitimate is, I think, the hallmark of a sane person who does this. Uh, I think anyone without imposter syndrome must be a bit wrong <laughs> in the head because there's no moment where anyone's going to stamp something on your chest and tell you you're real, you know. And um, yeah, it. Certainly for me, it feels like a series of lucky moments where people went out of their way for me and I responded by grabbing it with both hands and working as hard as I possibly could and giving it everything. And that's all you can do. And I think that's why I'm so keen when I come across young people who want to do this, especially if they or from backgrounds where they haven't necessarily had that help or that um or been given that understanding I try and I try and give them a shot and I try and use whatever I've accrued in the years gone by to 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 kind of help them and give them a bit of a push um because people absolutely did that for me and if they hadn't have done I don't know I don't know what I would be doing now it certainly didn't feel ever logical or like a ladder. And I don't think it ever does. I think it always feels like you you are scrambling. And the best you can do is sort of try and appreciate and enjoy it as you go. I think um, I look back now at Cluid and the other room where I spent a lot of time looking at my friends in London and thinking oh god i i'm out of it i'm not there doing those things you know um and actually i look back on those times as absolutely golden years where i i, I yeah i i just think try and appreciate being allowed to make work at all certainly when i was 12 in stoke i wasn't thinking oh, I want to win an Olivier. I didn't know what an Olivier was. I just wanted my job that I got paid for to be to make theatre for a living. And I try and remind myself of that when I get a big bout of imposter syndrome and I feel like I'm not doing as well as I should be. 
which I just think is really human and normal. You mentioned there um, people giving you opportunities and grabbing them with both hands, but you also made your own opportunity in the founding of The Other Room. Can you talk about that decision and where that came from, the decision to found a pub, uh, create a pub theatre in Cardiff? Yeah, it's another thing where I look back and I get a wave of kind of terror, but at the time I was super sure and I couldn't understand why everyone was so worried for me. So I just, I was at Cluid, I had found all these amazing Welsh writers, I knew all these amazing Welsh actors, and I'd been to Cardiff lots of times on Cluid business, and actors live there, loads of actors live there, and what I'd learned from the Fimbra is if actors live somewhere, you can run a pub theatre, because you can ask people to work on their own doorstep. I was very clear that it would have to be a theatre where everyone was properly paid, so I um was financially speaking looking more at the gate as a model but taking the stuff I'd learned from Neil and that ethos and it was because I felt like if I went back to London I'd had these amazing experiences in Wales and built a certain amount of reputation and I felt that if I went back to London London's um at that point London's um awareness of theatre in Wales was kind of was very limited. National Theatre of Wales had begun to penetrate, but Cluid really didn't register. And uh, I didn't want to go back to the beginning. I wanted to build on on um, on the work I'd done at Cluid. And so I packed up my family and just moved to Cardiff with an idea. That was it. I gave up my job at Cluid. I felt like I'd done everything I could do there. And we just moved. And it seems mad now, but I just really believed in it. And I knew there was this incredible talent in that city and I felt like I could make it work. And and again, it was a, it was a couple of strokes of incredible luck. I, um, I was getting a lot of advice from Claire Slater, who at the time ran the gate with Chris Hayden. And she said, ask all the big institutions for fundraising advice and they'll they'll send you someone relatively junior because they, they, they won't want to take the time. And if that person's really smart, see if you can get them interested. And sure enough, I, I wrote to uh, WNO, Welsh National Opera, and they sent me Busy Day. Um, and within 20 minutes of meeting her, I thought, this woman is a genius. She turned up with a file full of ideas. Um and I, I said to her, do you want to do this with me? Come and do this with me. We could do this. And bless her, she did. And six months later, we found Porters, Dan Porter uh, and Dave Wilson, a former actor and theatre producer, ran this pub in Cardiff. They had a little room next door to the pub that they were using as a cinema. And they said, come and do it here. We'll cover your overheads. You bring people into the bar. And within a year, we were open which was slightly terrifying because I planned to have a baby in between. So uh, I, I had a baby in the August and we opened the other room in the January. <laughs> um, so there are lots of, uh, there are lots of photographs of, um, of us painting walls and building seating blocks. And I've got a little baby Felix strapped to me. Um, but that was great too, because we built a team around the idea. So actually quite a few of the team went on to have kids while we were there and the other room always had, there were just always babies around. And that, that became very normal because it was built into the DNA of the building. Um, 
And we founded it on the basis that um, we were going to make really high quality theatre in a small setting, that we were going to have an enormous focus on talent development for young artists, particularly working class Welsh artists. And um, and we were going to have at least one new play by a Welsh writer in every season. And it just it just found its moment. The city was so supportive. Um, they really turned out for us. Young artists flocked to our banner um, and made incredible work. And one of the things I'm proudest of in my life is that The Other Room is still thriving under Dan Jones, who was one of the first assistants in our first season and who's a working class lad from the Valleys, um, who has incredible vision and has made the place his own. And I, I feel like it was always a pilot that Busy and I would run it as two English women. And it was always intended that it be handed to Wales um, for them to take on and run because that talent has always been there in that city. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it was an extraordinary thing. And I feel very lucky to have been part of it. Um, how did how did you go about finding your audience for that theatre? Um, so we were very fortunate that the um, the person who did the marketing for Porter's The Pub was a recent English graduate called Ben Atterbury, who now runs Ferment at Bristol, a tremendously um, exciting, talented young man at the time, um, who with a keen interest in talent development. And he plugged us into all of the networks in the city. And we had a very distinct brand at the time, very, very unique for Cardiff. We went for this very glossy, Netflixy. Um, sort of um, bespoke experience vibe and because it was a small city and we had a very distinct offer you know our first season we opened with Blasted and um, no one was really doing that Um, and we had this very yeah this very sort of um, distinct marketing brand we we unashamedly marketed ourselves at young audiences and it just took off. Tickets were really cheap. Um, our top ticket price was £10. Uh, previews will pay what you can. Word of mouth just spread like wildfire. And because we made the artists our community, they also, they were our, the beginning of our audience. And that 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 meant word spread and, and people came. And it just snowballed. I think... If something's really wanted and needed, people come. The audiences come. And, and yeah, it, 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 it was a 47-seat theatre, so it wasn't hard to create a buzz um, because you could pack that space out. But we were running things for three to four weeks. So it was it was a real thing, you know, and, and we were delighted and amazed by how quickly it took off. And obviously, it's you. You said it, it was a, a pilot for you to run it, but um, I mean, it, it must have been a, a brilliant time. And you're getting to make work and support artists whom you believe in. What was it that prompted you to want to move on from the other room and seek different challenges? So I wasn't really ready to go. I I really thought I was going to give it another couple of years, um, but out of joint came up. So it wasn't that I was applying for jobs all over the shop. I I saw out of joint and I just thought, that's me. I can do that. I want to do that. 
Um, it, it, it was partly to do with the political climate. Things had started to started to considerably darken and um, society had started to split. And I thought I want to, if I'm going to justify doing this with my life, I want to feel like I am at least trying to reach more people. And the other room, although it was just beginning to find its Bambi legs, I, I knew it, I knew, especially if busy stayed for a couple more years, I knew that it would be all right. And that that chance at out of joint wouldn't come up again. It, it just, new writing, touring, political, it just looked like my place. And I, yeah, I just really wanted to apply for it. And it's funny I read a lot of job adverts and think oh, I couldn't do that. And I, this one, I just, from the beginning, I just thought I could do that. I really think I could do that. I really want to do that. So I, I just applied for that and I didn't tell anyone until I got through to the second round. And then I sat busy down and I said, I know it's early, but I've got an interview for this. And I just really, I really want to do it. And she was super supportive. And she said, you know, we'll be okay. You go for it. And I did. And, um, and yeah, it just felt right. It just felt right. Wasn't expecting it to be quite as um, terrifying a first couple of years as it turned out to be. I thought I was going to be running a company with Max and uh, bringing new ideas and, you know, expanding the work of the company. Uh, so I wasn't expecting it to be quite such a baptism of fire. But the commitment to what the company does is what got me it's what attracted me and it's what got me through the brief which is to make work at the mid-scale to tour to take work to cities like the one I grew up in for people for audiences like I was who are hungry for work beyond you know the Vic in Stoke is an amazing theatre and it had it's an, an amazing brand of work under Peter Cheeseman that I loved telling local stories but it was the touring plays that came to that theatre that changed my view on what theatre could do and be and I I was really attracted to that so I just went for it and I got it which was great. <laughs> and obviously you uh it changed pretty quickly the remit of your job and you became sole artistic director but initially uh the job was was it uh, joint artistic director or deputy artistic director? What was the title? It was joint, yeah. It was to run it completely in partnership with Max, yeah. And I just, I just wonder when you, uh, when you go through the, the rounds of interviews and you get the job, I, I wonder what, what would it have been like for you, or what was it like in that first uh, little period, um, six months or whatever it was, to go from being an artistic director of a, of a theatre to sharing artistic leadership. And what was that transition like? Well, I can't really say because it was so quick. I actually had only been in post a few weeks. Oh, right. I've misunderstood the timeline. Um, yeah. So, it, well, the timeline is fuzzy because there was what ha was happening internally, um, which happened much faster because obviously it was being dealt with internally um, mm -hmm. and confidentially. So the reality of the internal timeline is that I was a couple of weeks in post and actually still doing my last freelance job. So I had, well, my my penultimate freelance job. So I was doing Chenevar, Howell John's play for the other room. 
And I also was gearing up to do The Rise and Fall of Little Voice at Theatre Cluid, which both of which I'd already committed to before getting the job out of joint. And so what my experience of it actually was, I just started to go into the office and find my feet whilst doing um, Chenevar and prepping for Little Voice. And then, and then I went on holiday with my family and two days in I had to come back and take over Rita Sue and Bob T rehearsals and for me it was enormously about making sure that show was okay when there was this you know I, I took it over on day three of rehearsals um and 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 I then had to direct that show and Little Voice in tandem and that was a big challenge and very tricky um, in terms of running the company with Max, I think he really wanted to make it work. He had absolutely the intention of running the company in partnership and he was very generous. But I think it would always have been difficult when you founded a company. It's why I've stayed away from the other room. I I love Dan and I'm enormously supportive of him, but I've not gone back there because I think when you found something, when you build it, it's very hard to let go and share that power with someone else. So I think it would always have been a challenge, but I'll never really know how it would have panned out because it never happened. It it, it felt really like very quickly, it was my ship and it was a ship in extreme difficulty. And um, was there ever any doubt that you, uh, that you would take over when uh, Max had to depart? Um... Not in my mind. I felt like that was my job um, and that part of the understanding of taking on a younger autistic director alongside the founder was that it was planning, continuity planning. So that felt, although it was much sooner than I'd expected, that felt logical. I think that um, it was a big shock for... Um, the company and the board and the Arts Council and there was a certain amount of reassuring them that we could make this work Um, and Martin and I fought very hard to steady the ship and reassure everybody and I think within a year we had done that to the point where we had the trust of the board and the Arts Council but it, it was by no means given for free. I think when you have a big famous company run by a very famous founder, regardless of the handover situation, you're going to have founder syndrome and you're going to struggle to reassure people that that company has a future, never mind when it happens so suddenly and under such bizarre circumstances. So it was a bit of a rocky transition, but um, we got there. We got there. Uh, And let's uh, just uh, shift now, if you don't mind, and talk about process for a little bit. Whenever I've been speaking to a director on these podcasts, I've been asking them to describe what the first week in your rehearsal room looks like. Sure. Great. Um, So I liked I don't do read through. Um, I I like to start at 10 o'clock on the Monday by sitting down with the play and reading it scene by scene and talking about what it means. And my table work's pretty basic. It's essentially, we read it, we talk about it, 
we have a, a Bible of technical terms or bits of research. We make sure everyone knows what everything means in a sort of very basic sense. Um, we normally do the meet and greet after lunch on the first day because I I just remember being an assistant director at meet and greets and it being at 10 o'clock and not knowing anyone and not having anyone to go and talk to and it being horrid. So I like the cast to at least have each other and have met each other. So at two o'clock, we do the meet and greet and the model box. So they've already started to build an imaginative world before they see the set. I think that's really important. Uh, and I try and get through table work as quickly as possible. Whilst being relatively thorough, I love to be on my feet, us to be on our feet by day three or four. And normally I then, I dash through it again, very basically, practically working out practical problems, making a first offer, actors making a first offer of entrances, exits, how we're gonna, you know, do the chicken dinner, whatever. We solve all the practical stuff. And normally we do a run through on the Saturday morning of week one. And I tell everyone it's going to be rubbish and they shouldn't worry about it. We're just going to get from one end of the play to the other without falling over. And then we'll know what it is. They'll have said all the lines in the right order whilst moving about and we'll all know what it is. But generally speaking, it's pretty fantastic because the actors just let themselves off the hook. And I find that much more beneficial than a read through because they've actually started to work together and perform together already. They've got a sense of what I'm after. And instead of getting essentially the performance that they would give in an audition, you get the first draft of your production and you're then at leisure to go back in week two and start again and comb over it and comb over it and comb over it. And I, I really think my primary responsibility is to let them have as many goes at it as possible before they go on stage, whilst making sure everyone knows what they're doing and inviting them to give me every idea they've got in their head and, and encouraging that and creating a loving environment where they feel like they can give me their worst idea and I will lovingly accept it so that they then give me their best idea. Um, so the first week is about laying those foundations. And I'm just interested, so those those very first passes at uh, scenes and getting up on, on your feet, what yeah. is, what's the prompt that makes that happen? What needs to be in place before you can have that first pass at a scene? You need to have been through the scene on paper and know what, literally what everything means, what people are saying and, and, and what they're referring to. You need the markup because you're really attempting to make the scene at that point with the audience in mind. For me, you need to have talked about and acknowledged all of the practical problems, even if you can't solve them. So you need to have gone, ah, oh, yeah, so there's a coat here. Or, um, oh, yeah, you're, we need to establish street here. And you go, okay, well, let's do a draft where X, Y, Z. And it doesn't really matter what solutions you find that first time. What matters is that you face head on the business of problem solving and you turn scene making into a series of problems to be solved. And the acting is what happens in between. So, you know, if life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, acting is what happens when you know where you're getting your umbrella from. And while they're thinking about that, they're not stressing out about the other stuff. And they, I think a lot, actors spend a lot of time being very patient while directors bang on about theme or history. And actually, they're secretly worrying about how they're going to get their shoes on. 
And if you let them get their shoes on, they'll give you a lot of the rest. So I'm just really practical in my approach. And I find that that allows you in weeks two, three and four to hit the heights because actors will give you everything if you reassure them you'll always listen to them and that you know the problems they're facing on stage and you're going to take care of that. That's brilliant. And I'm I'm definitely keeping in my back pocket acting is what happens when you're looking for your umbrella. That is, um, um, in fact, if you ever write a book, can that be the title? <laughs> uh, it's been great to talk to you, Kate. I just have two final very quick questions before I let you get on with running your theatre company. Um, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Um, yes. Um, Passover at Kiln. Um, which I saw just before the lockdown happened, um, which on every level blew me away uh, as a piece of writing, um, as a piece of directing, the acting. Um, it was just so focused and beautiful and did what only theatre can do, which was allow several realities to exist at once all in a single moment in a way that helps you understand yourself and the world better. I was so sad that it didn't get to complete its run. And I really hope that Kiln get to bring it back when the lockdown is over, because I think it's a piece of theatre everyone should see. And finally, can you recommend something for us to all enjoy while we're social distancing? Yes, Better Call Saul, which um, is a spin-off show from Breaking Bad and is, in my opinion, television in the golden age of television hitting the heights follows the the lawyer in Breaking Bad and is this incredible uh, reverie on uh, right and wrong and money and the American dream. It's just beautiful. It's, it's drama at its absolute best. Everyone should watch it. Brilliant. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been super interesting um, and hopefully I'll get to see you in person soon. Um, uh, thanks, Kate. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.